From 26, this is Rachel and Katie. Daisy's being good today. It's, it's, it's the dogs this time. Yes, it's the dogs. Yes, the generation that is now a generation of oversharing has given us an opportunity that has been quiet through the generations to hide our stigma of grief and of living with epilepsy. And it's quite nice to have that opportunity now to kind of it's spread awareness and um, help drop the stigma of both grief and death. For me, it's like my therapy because this and the occasional session with my counselor are like the only times I can really talk about this completely comfortable. I agree. The main thing about doing this podcast and being with you is like knowing that I'm not alone and that when this reaches people it's reaching people to a personal level and also to an extent where they're actually reaching out to us and like wanting to become part of the community to spread awareness and talk about their journeys as well right and it's a really casual environment we've created too i've participated you have too in other organizations with epilepsy that do some remarkable things But one thing I was missing was like the connection. And sometimes I feel like doing a art project is not the awareness I want to spread. Correct. (laughs) So yeah, I'm talking, you know, that art project I was talking about. (laughs) I laugh about that because I think it's so hilarious. Um, We did make our way through that and those charitable communities and foundations and they're out there and they're out there for a reason and I definitely didn't feel there was any type of impact I was getting from participating in most of the activities that I was spending time on (laughs) so uh, this has been much more a wild ride but I would say more of a successful personal ride a lot of people reaching out and communicating with us. Though I do miss your purple wreaths. Those look pretty cool. The wreaths, yes. I do miss making the wreaths. And actually, uh, I'm thinking about making a fall wreath, like with purple and black and, Ooh. yeah, Halloween-y. And, yeah, I do feel it's kind of turning fallish out there. I went grocery shopping today and they have pumpkins at the store. They do? Yeah. Oh. Did you get any? No. We should, and we should paint them purple. You know, I had every intention to do that project last year, and I bought a couple pumpkins and I was ready to paint them purple or carve them yeah. to spread epilepsy awareness, but in our neighborhood, you see a neighbor maybe once every other day. So I felt like I wasn't, wasn't spreading a whole lot of awareness. No, what would have been fun if we could have taken that project to say my son's classroom, like with a mini pumpkin and had all of the kiddos do a mini pumpkin or something that would have been fun. But that's about the only time I feel like I was actually doing anything. But So Long story short, I'm super stoked about our podcast and how many people we've already reached and have reached out to us. And we're, we're making, we're making it. We're getting there. We're getting, we're spreading the word. We're breaking the coffin and we're making a difference. And it's all of our listeners that make this podcast possible. Those are the people we want to have conversations with and get to know. We don't assign any art projects photographs, nothing like that. No, you don't have to do any of that. They never used any of my photographs anyways, or my videos. 
you you were you weren't oriented correctly okay no i was the one who followed directions i am very detail oriented i followed the directions to a t i can't help it if everybody else i know get the orientation of the cameras correctly so they asked me to redo my video to have the orientation match the people who didn't follow the instructions for the majority of the people that didn't follow the instructions oh you look at you picking up for the masses that's I never resubmitted I was done oh I only did I only did one video with them a couple projects and then like you said it's just it became to a point where I was using a lot of my time and personal time where I felt like we could use it in other places though it looked like recently they had some sort of red carpet event had like a backdrop and people were in fancy dresses we should do something like that for 26 someday very Hollywood very glam event a gala yes we could have a gala and we could have a nice dinner and we can have people donate items and have you seen the what not 10 things i hate about you but know how to rid of a guy in 10 days i don't think so goldie hahn's daughter kate hudson uh, no but i don't think i've seen it they have this like ball charity event where uh, I think it was like Tiffany's or something sponsored it in the movie and you could pick out beautiful diamond jewelry before going in and so she wore a gold yellow dress and picked out a gold and diamond very pizzazzy necklace so I'd like to have that feature in our gala. Between that and, and then like some handbags, some Louis Vuitton. Yeah. You have to give it back at the end of the night but the entire gala the handbag or the necklace is yours. And I can live with that. I can live with that. I will definitely give it back. I just will carry it around yeah, for it to sit next to me so we can look at each other. Yes, admire each other's <laughs> stolen jewelry. Yes. Oh, oh, the joys, our goals. I can't wait. I can't wait till we actually look back and listen to this. And when we're actually having a gala or attending a gala, it will happen. It's reality. Yes. Manifestation. Manifestation. So this is episode five, isn't it? Yes. Episode five, season one. Thank you, listeners. I like that intro right there. <laughs> Snapped right into episode um, mode. Yeah. <laughs> kind of. I, this is going to be a tough one to talk about how to... So today we're going to talk about status epilepticus, otherwise known as status or SE. Do you know much about status, Rachel? I'm not going to lie, I had to Google that. I'm more, yeah, status epilepticus. It almost reminded me of Levin, Levinus, 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 like right. one episode. Uh, but I think every great episode begins with a Google search looking at Google status epilepticus, I learned is a seizure that has a duration longer than five minutes. Or on the other hand, you can have more than one seizure within a five minute period. Or never returning back to baseline after a certain amount of time. Which is like SUDEP, right? Sudden yeah, so this is so this is generally going to be the highest morbi morbidity, morbidity rate. If you go into status, you are most likely to die of, of SUDEP. Which you would die similar to the outcomes of, uh, of SUDEP. I mean, it would be, if you would never come out of the seizure, it'd either be pulmonary related or it could be heart related or brain death related. Exactly. Okay. Yep. Yeah, and then a SUDEP, as far as, yeah, if it's not the first seizure, then it's probably that person's second or third, which would be considered going status. So, yeah, basically uh, continuous seizures and that patient never having a chance to recover or their brain to recover and most likely causing death, if not treated. Going into status sounds like something out of the twilight zone you went into status last year I did I went status in October 
for my first time ever in the 27 years of me having seizures and, you know, being on and off with my medications throughout my childhood and teenage years and early 20s. But I, so I also have rescue meds when I was saying that the only way to stop status is if it's treated properly. And typically that's treated with a nasal um, inhalant and which is also considered a rescue med, which is either going to be midazolam or Versed. Um, if you're around an ambulance, you're going to get an IV uh, like Ativan or something like that. So I will typically have one seizure. Very rarely will I ever have two seizures in a row or even two seizures in one day. So I'll have my one seizure and then recover. When I went status, I just, I, I woke up that morning and I have generally have seizures, grand mal seizures upon awakening. And it was about 6.30 in the morning and I was in the restroom and I was kind of like putzing around because I forget what I'm doing when I'm about ready to have a seizure. And so for, for some reason, I was just like in the bathroom standing there like, or what am I doing in here? And next thing I knew, I was waking up on the couch and... I just, I was, I was vomiting a lot. I was, um, you know, asking for water. My son was bringing me water. And then I, I remember having, I just remember a long day of me laying on the couch and I'd come in and out of consciousness and I would have um, like a really, really bad headache. And then, then I'd be puking, um, just nonstop puking and my son would have to go get his dad to administer my my midazolam which is the nasal rescue med and I would have about every three hours I would have another grand mal seizure so he administered I had five grand mal seizures within like 23 hours and at one point I just, I got off the couch and I was like, I oh, my head hurts so bad. And I, I just want to go into the bedroom and, and go to bed. And I guess I must've had a couple more seizures. And then the next thing I knew it was 3 a.m. in the morning. And I, I'm like being told that I'm going to go, I'm taking you to the hospital. I'm just like, still like, I have no idea what's going on. So it's been like a full day and like, I'm still standing in the bathroom. <laughs> That's where I left off was like, so like, what am I doing in this bathroom? Like, oh my gosh. And then bam, I hit the floor. And then, and then I just have like these like in and outs of like, yeah, the puking and like how bad my head hurt. And my poor son was like getting me the puke bowl and the water. And then we loaded up the car at 3 a.m. and my neurologist is in Portland and I live about two hours away from my neurologist. And I'd had an emergency situation here in the town that I live in about two months prior to going status. And when I was taken to the hospital here in town, they, they wanted to run all these tests on me. They wanted to do all this stuff. And it, it, it just kind of, it put a bad taste in our, like our mouth versus like, just like trying to treat me and what was happening. They like wanted to like diagnose you again, maybe. Yeah. yeah. Reinvent the wheel of epilepsy that I have. It's it epilepsy. Like, <laughs> yeah. It was like, into status, but we got to make sure this is truly epilepsy. Yes. So my son and his dad and I, he, we get into the truck and he drove me to Portland at like three o'clock in the morning. And I remember like, like walking out to the truck and I was just like, so sick. Like I so sick, just like standing and like holding up like one hand on the garage, just puking out in the driveway. And then just like, okay, get into the car and we drove as fast as we could up to Portland to OHSU emergency room. And 
Jeff called my dad or my dad met him at the emergency room so he could give Milo, our son, to grandpa. And grandpa took Milo and Jeff and I went to the emergency room. And the weirdest thing is I actually had a scheduled neurology appointment that day. Were you late? No, that's the best part about it. That's the best part about it. They're like, oh, you have a, the whole neurology team. I have to give major props to OHSU. Like my neurologist was on vacation, but the neurology team that was on call in the ER obviously saw my extensive history, got a hold of my doctor, and they were able to like come up with a plan. They knew I had that appointment later in the day. You know, I had been so sick. I hadn't had meds in like probably about 48 hours. So they had IV me meds and like just do a whole bunch of stuff in the ER. And then they released me in time to um, make it to my neurology appointment at two o'clock. So there you go. Yeah. A very neurological eventful day. It was a very neural. And so then the best part was when um, the doctor looks at my husband and he's like, um, next time you have to administer nasal spray three times. And she goes, status, will you please just call 911? And he's just like, yeah. he's like what? Why? <laughs> and it's like, and when you read the statistics between what happens with status and, you know, your heart and your lungs and all of the stress that happens there on top of the fact when basically midazolam or Versed or Ativan are typical like general anesthetics. And so when you're using it multiple times, it kind of like builds up in the body. So you become shallower and shallower at breathing. So um, between the two, like um, she was just like, everything's fine, but like. Do you have a plan like that with your husband? You're, I mean, you never, I don't know if you had prepared to ever go into status someday. So he was really just going off the top of his head, going how you were feeling, saw you were really sick and you, you just don't think you're going to have one more. And then you just kept having more. Yeah. And then I just kept having them. And so I think he, thankfully we have, you know, a rescue plan in place, which are considered my rescue meds. And when he had gone through like all of my rescue meds and seeing that I was still continuing to have them. And then like at three o'clock in the morning, when I had had them, it was like, he was, he was freaked out of his mind at that time. He was like, you know, he'd never seen me in this state. He's, you know, seen me puke and be sick and miserable for a day and a half, but that's only after having one seizure. He's never seen me just continuously. And he's, he figured out the pattern that it was about every three to four hours. And so he knew there was going to be a time frame after that one at three o'clock in the morning. He was like, I've got enough time to drive her to her neurologist. So we're going and some were back to back or they would have been back to back if he didn't administer the rescue medication. Yeah. I didn't have enough for all five of the seizures. So I got only three rounds of the medicine. Five seizures in 24 hours, grand mal seizures. He was able to catch it as soon as possible. He grabbed the medication and administer it right away. And then once he administers it, does it immediately stop? Yeah. Okay. They, they pretty much immediately stop. What yeah. about your VNS watch? Did he swipe that at all as well? Or did he um, were conscious in between? The, maybe the one in the bed. The, there was nothing that was stuck because that always stimulates. So that entire time that I was in status, uh, that VNS should have been going off or like overstimulating and, and doing like the higher stimulation. But it would recognize when you're in status. Yeah, it should just manually swipe it every right. time. I would have hoped, but it didn't ever take me out of the status situation. This is a scary experience for you, but it's perhaps more scary for your family, your your seven year old son and your husband that were there because they were conscious the entire time and knew exactly what was happening and especially I'm thinking of Milo 
when he was witnessing his mom go into these and, and be rescued five times or three out of the five times that day. Yeah, you know, that that's a really, it was a really rough day for him. I mean, he, I mentioned it earlier on my story when we'd interviewed that he asked me if I would still be alive if daddy didn't put that stuff up your nose. And I, you know, yeah, I'll be, I'll be fine, you know, do the best to just reassure him that we're going to do the best, you know, between your dad and I. And then he would, like I said, tend to me and care for me, whether that get me a glass of water or get me a bowl or take care of my bowl. That's so sweet. Isn't it? Taking care of your throw up bowl too. And <laughs> it's seven years old. That is so sweet. It shouldn't have to be a, a little boy taking care of their mother. It, you know, it should be the, the other way around. It's just, it's not fair to him either. It's not. No. And I make these screeching and gurgling and most god awful noises. So I'd start to screech and gurgle and make my noises. And then he'd have to run off and go tell dad, you know, that mom's doing that thing again and you'd have to go alert dad and then and then get packed up in the car at 3 a.m and I I just think he went through the mill that day too just seeing his mom like that yeah that I think was and you know of course Jeff save you know saving the day by making I think one of the best shots by taking me just directly to OHSU where I, I was tended to by the neurological team and my neuro doctors. And I also do know that if I was in a very emergent situation, we know it, we can go local if it's, if it's emergency, emergency type, type thing. Was your dog by your side as well that day? So honestly, that's so funny that you mentioned that, but that actually could have been the trigger for the whole situation is not even a week before that I put down we had to put my dog to sleep and she was my like my she was I would consider her a seizure dog she was not like she'd never gone through the program or anything but she could totally tell if I was going to have a seizure and then she would sit there in comfort during post-ictal state and tend lay with me and cuddle me I find it just uncanny that there are dogs that the dog owners claim alert them before they're having a seizure. And I was reading in the Irish Times recently, there was actually a study in the MDPI animals that was funded by Epilepsy Research Ireland, where they took sweat samples of the dog owners before a seizure, preictally, postictally, after a seizure, as well as during a seizure, and remotely released this odor to dogs when they're in the same room with their owner. And they watched as these dogs demonstrated a complete behavioral change towards their owners. They might let out a cry or they sought eye contact, but they had some sort of behavioral change that correlated with the onset or the period after or during a seizure. Pre-ictal, she would like not shuffle me to the couch, but she would, she would just follow me and she wasn't really a follower. She's kind of like one that would just lay on the floor. And then like, if I moved room, she might move room and then lay on the floor. But like, if I was about ready to go into seizure, she'd like kind of just be on her feet, like kind of following me around. And that's just incredible to me that our furry companions can potentially be one of the best monitors for epileptic seizures. There's so much research right now into technology, bed alarms, phone alarms, watches that can detect this, but dogs might naturally have this ability as well. And that could be so helpful for the future as more and more funding goes into these programs. I, I have a new puppy that Thankfully, hasn't experienced any seizures yet. So, and we'll see if she has to or gets to, I guess. But. We were talking about how, because your your current dog and your new puppy, they're both Rottweilers and they're more of extremely intelligent animals, kind of extreme lovers, yes. trained right, and they're uh, observant and aloof. 
But you said your first dog or your other dog that had passed was a lab. Yes. And my dog is golden lab and she's the same way. Just, Oh, she, she'll follow you if you're, if you're ill or when I was in grief, she would just lay there on the bed with me in a dark room for hours and just let me completely cuddle her all my body weight. Oh my goodness. Yes. And just let you just do whatever you need to do. Like, yeah. Cuddle, hold, wrapper in a blanket (laughs) anything they're they're ready to just support you and love you and I mean she was my best friend during grief and she was also Joe and I's baby because Joe and I picked her out so she was like kind of like our baby our our love child we drove to Washington to get her he completely trained her when I was working jobs and he was staying over here for the summer from Scotland and would spend all day every day just training her trained her so well just to be the most gentle she'd be a great epilepsy dog kind of like you said your dog was they're so it's so natural it's so natural. natural instinct and it's these the natural sense that they pick up on it's they're very um this special very special dogs and that's not to discredit my rottweilers my rottweilers no. are wonderful dogs but the lab has got something that my poor tika <laughs> can't handle she gets a little yeah she gets a little more freaked out about the situation you can see it in their their eyes it's like they're grieving too sometimes or they're they feel the sorrow for you yeah and they know something's wrong they know something's off truly animals companion animals emotional support animals I believe it in in a dog I believe it in a horse I believe it can come in the form of a fish a bird I mean whatever a person really needs or connects with. I think that um, animals are play a huge role in mental health, physical health. I definitely think Katie that contributed the timing wise to probably with combination of many other factors, you know, hormones can be nutrition. We've talked about grief and grief, particularly when losing somebody or something like I remember when I lost my dog, Boo, before we had Louisa, my sister and I were devastated. It was harder than losing like family members or any other loss up until that point. And this is before I lost Joe, but that was so incredibly painful. And I just remember crying all day long and it, it just, it just messes up your system. It aches. You know, kind of ill. Yes. It aches. These it's they're they, their souls, their spirits, and they take up a part of your, your heart and their family members. And I think in a way, I talk a lot about it to my son in preparation, because, you know, in the end, we all are going to die. I, it, it's painful and you're going to experience it over and over and over again in so many different ways and realms. So I really kind of try to be open with him because God, you know, I guess God willing, something happened to me. When you say you'll never be ready for it, you're so, I mean, you're so right. You can never be ready for it. Difficult topic. And it's a difficult reality. Grief is a reality in everyone's life. You live it in a way that it's a traumatic. When you know that someone's passing away or know that someone's old, and you know, they've lived a good life, then it's maybe a little bit easier knowing that that person is, you know, been here and lived a good life versus a traumatic experience where that person is taken at a young age in a hard way. And either, but in either circumstance, are you really ready to handle the grief? I I just came right before recording this. I just came from my Graham's house and I went to go see my grandpa. He has dementia and, and it's been such a slow, slow decline. But in the last week, it's been a really rapid decline and he's barely communicating right now. And he's has a dazed look and it's hard to look at him in the eyes and talk with him, not because he's not responding, but just because you look yeah. at him and you know, it's days, weeks, months, we pray, you know, 
And my mom messaged me, how's grandpa doing? And my first thought in my head was, he's, he's starting a transition, but I'm not going to put that in a text. So I just said, he's quieter today. He's, he's sleepy today. And, but you know, when they're at that point where they're just sleeping a lot and you kind of know what's coming and, and I see my grandma and she just lost her son, my uncle, and she's dealing with that grief, but also seeing her husband, she's been married to for 64 years, die in front of her eyes in her living room. He can't walk. He can't eat without assistance. His eyes lights, light up when she goes and gives him kisses, says, I love you multiple times a day. And he replies to that and always says, I love you too. Oh, yeah. I can't decide there. I don't, I've just given up the debate, whether it's easier to lose somebody traumatically and, and rapidly and spontaneously or having a, a slow decline because they're both horrible. Right? It's both this. It, in it, own ways. Yeah. You enter into this world of grief that you have, you, it, it, grief is grief. And it's like apples to oranges. You still are in the fruit stand of grief. It's nothing to take lightly. And it's, you know, whether it's your grandfather, your, your loved one, a friend, um, it's just, and it's not, it's not fair. Like time is a thief. Grief can be a thief. Maybe in some cultures out there, Tibetan cultures, or they, they have a better understanding and the, a, a better way of maybe preparing for something like that and looking at it in a different light, but we're going to have to do an episode on um, grief and different cultures or, you know, um, ceremonies and different cultures. That would be an interesting topic. I thought after losing Joe that any death here forward would not be as painful. I can never be as hurt and crippled as much as I was again but it, it, it doesn't get necessarily easier. You know, I, I, I think in my mind, like, Oh, you know, grandpa's lived a very long full life and they've had so much time together to say goodbye and do so many things. Joe and I only got, you know, X amount of years together and we had our lives together cut short and no chance to say goodbye and no, but you can't make comparisons like that because she's living with somebody for 64 years, her partner. And, and he is dying and, and he's going to be gone soon. And she's going to be in an empty house. I think that, I think it's great. We're talking about this in our podcast a lot on grief. Yes. And on being more open about grief and being more open about your diagnosis of whatever diagnosis you have, whatever you're struggling with, whether it's depression, high blood pressure, or epilepsy. It does good when you're, when you're sharing for a purpose and, and when you're sharing your story about grief and your grief in correlation with epilepsy, it, it, um, it brings a whole new light and I, and I mean light as in kind of a dark light to epilepsy because when you talk about epilepsy, it's kind of one of those things like, oh, I got an epilepsy diagnosis or, oh, my friend has seizures or, oh, someone, you know, flopped around like a fish. They really talk about it like it's no big deal and nothing can really happen big out of, you know, epilepsy or having a seizure or something like that. And you really bring to light that there is this ugly side to it. There is this dark side to it that can ruin your life and tragically tear what you thought was normal, what you thought was your future and just wipe that rug right out from underneath you. And you don't even have it. It's somebody that you love that had it and you were affected by it. I've been having some trauma dreams lately and I don't get nightmares but I only get sad dreams Mm -hmm. and I call those nightmares when I have a nightmare or I'm about to have a nightmare I lucid dream so I can get out of the situation but with a sad dream I can't tell if it's a nightmare and I can't change a situation and I had a dream the other day that Joe is still alive but I I had died I was like in this drawing room 
like boardroom. And this was after I had had like tours of just these parks of like people all in their own zone, some sitting together, some sitting separate, some listening to music. It was beautiful. There were just like gardens and I was just seeing all these beautiful images. And then I was in this like boardroom and it was almost like an orientation. And I realized in my dream, it was like an introduction to heaven and people were so joyful around me and I was too. And then I realized, wait, I'm dead. I, my first thought was Joe. Suddenly the, the back of the room, the wall became like a satellite image, almost like a navigation image. I, I said, show me Joe. Yeah, you want to go to Joe. You I want to go to Joe. Yeah. And they showed his like satellite moving. He was on the way to the hospital. He'd had a seizure. And I just couldn't do anything about it. I, I was gone. And I, the stress had caused Joe to just be in a very serious state, maybe in SE. SE. In reality, if, it, if the roles were, to, were switched and, and I had passed for whatever reason, there's a very high chance that would have happened to Joe and it would have been very, very dangerous for his health. I agree with that. He, he, that would have been tremendously hard on him and his body deal with that. And he probably would have gone messy. That stress and fatigue, the mental drain, it all adds up plays a part and how bizarre that you're looking down but you know it's so out of body but in body and you wanted to go to him and you wanted to find him you just wanted that person to be okay and probably similar to how he feels wherever he's at to that he he just wanted me to be okay there's there's joy but there's also I don't know if they experience sorrow but I think they can experience empathy they can see it. They can. That's why they send signs. That's why they give you the signs to let you know that they're okay and that they're there with you. I know my girlfriend that passed away of, of cancer at the age of 30. The yellow rose is how she comes to me. And it's just the most bizarre thing. Like I, when she first passed, I got a yellow rose and I planted it in my yard and I called it her rose, Jamie's rose. And then just so I could go sit with it. And I kind of made it like her memorial, like a memorial place. So I could just go sit and be at peace with her. And then we were getting ready to move away from that home. And we were buying, purchasing this new house. And long story short, I had no idea in the jungle of foliage that was my home, there was a buried yellow rose once we were able to cut back some of the overgrown foliage. I knew she was here with me at this new house, even though it wasn't the same rose because it was still at that old house, but she was still here and came with me and was present. And so it's just, it's those little signs that you just, I don't know, make you feel like that they're around. I feel like I got a lot more at the beginning. And I don't know if you feel that way with your girlfriend as well. Like in the first year, year and a half. My papa, I always seem because I get him in the form of like a monarch butterfly. So he's always just randomness like, oh, papa, like there you are. And then sometimes it's just like flutter, like right, really close. And when I saw a medium months after, one of the signs she said to look out for were butterflies. I was on the road all the time for my job. And I swear within a span of a few days, I hit with my windshield, like butterflies. It was the weirdest thing. It's never happened to me again. (laughs) I'm killing all these butterflies on my windshield. That is so strange. Like I've killed flies and stuff like that with my car, but not like butterflies. And it was literally like, it was like even two in one day. Just like- No, that is strange. When the medium said that, I was imagining like, you know, this beautiful monarch, you know, landing on my nose and now I, my windshield pressed <laughs> five beautiful butterflies, <laughs> like really pretty ones. Oh my goodness. I don't mean to laugh, but that is so bizarre. And they did come to you, but in a very, <laughs> he, he wanted to make you laugh about that. That's so, but that's like. I mean, it's not just like sending me a butterfly. It's like throwing one at my car. 
<laughs> my grandmother's she's 95 and I was recently visiting her a few weeks ago and oh. I never really have got a chance to talk to any of my grandparents before they passed away but um so I was asking her and was like so Gaga Papa visits me in the form of butterflies how do you see yourself like visiting me and like what kind of signs do you think that I should look for for you she loves flowers and she loves rivers and oceans and things like that and she she to me playing with your doors so if you have any opening and (laughs) closing of doors I'm like oh dear okay I'm gonna be taking all the china off your cupboards and throwing it around the house poltergeist when the thing goes flying across the room, I'll know that's her. When the door slams, I'm just like, oh, Gaga, you were so funny. And then come sit on your chest as you sleep. You're having a hard time breathing, and uh, that's me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I thought it was funny, though, but she was cute. And I, I just thought it was it was nice to listen to her, to, to have, like, I guess, that that raw, real conversation with her which kind of gave me a little bit of peace. Like if she were to pass away tomorrow, she feels like she's lived a great life and I know how loved she knows she is. And I know how loved I am by her. And it's kind of a self grief is kind of a selfish thing. It's this, um, it's your own. You mean it's more personal. There we go. Yes. Personal. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. That's what I mean is it's very personal and it's, well, you have to, you have to you figure out your own ways to cope with coping mechanisms and things when you're grieving. Choose how to, who to share it with and how to share it because it's your secret. It's your, you, not everybody will react the way you want it to. Oh God, they will not react the way you want them to or the way that you think they should. Think they might. We'll do the opposite. It's nothing that you could ever expect. I had a, a even more recent than that dream. It was a wonderful dream at first. I was in Scotland at a house party in the backyard and it was sunny and there was like a swingy chair and a bunch of Joe's friends were there. And I went to sit down next to um, one of Joe's old friends and was asked, was catching up with him and he was talking about how he's, become an expert like poker player and chess player and I was like oh that's super cool that'd be extremely intelligent to be a very skilled chess player and and even poker player and then Joe popped over and his long limbs and summer shorts big grin on his face and started talking to his buddy too and was asking what he'd been up to and I I was cracking one of my stupid sarcastic jokes like oh you know yeah he's really gotten good at the games goldfish and something else and and the the friend didn't find it funny at all joe found it hilarious he was laughing so hard and then he he stood up he looked at me with his head tilted his smile was like a a side grin kind of cheeky the the look with the sparkle in his eye just like (laughs) like I love you so much Mm -hmm. sort of look so I started to smile back and then his hand was up kind of outreached and and on his hand there was like this cloth it was like a bloody cloth and that's just how quickly this like beautiful dream turned into this trauma dream I had a really hard time with that dream obviously because it I, I, oh, here's the, here's the best part. I was on the plane. I was on the plane home from San Diego. I was in a window seat and I was super tired because it was like a, one of those like 5 a.m. flights and I was looking uh-huh. against the window and I actually fell asleep for two hours. And that was my dream on the plane. I woke up yelling and woke up a bunch of people around me. Oh, and I'm sorry, but, but it wasn't even a yelling. It was like this internal, like rumble being scared and, and frightened. It was just so perfect. And then, and then I just remembered all of a sudden, like a slap in the face, what had happened. And I think the bloody cloth represents the the trauma that I imagine I wasn't there when he died, but the, the trauma I have, I usually don't have dreams like that, where I wake up like yelling, screaming, screaming. It was so deep from inside and so real. And that's so insane. 
anytime you're going through major change, that's when a lot of these trauma dreams arise. It's almost like ripping the bandage back off. You're just done with the trip from San Diego. Everything's fine. You just fall asleep on the airplane. And then it's like, yeah, slap in the face, like back to reality. This trauma, this trauma still lives deep within you that it can hit you at any given time and resurface. And it bombards and disrupts every memory with Joe. Every time I think of Joe, my love, and when I can get the courage to really dive into old memories and amazing times with him, it's accompanied by he's dead. He's gone. That's really hard. And that, that was kind of like a reminder. Every photo, I just look at him and first thing, you know, hi, Joe, hi, handsome. And then, and then my next thought is he died. Well, for example, on our Instagram I had posted the picture of Joe and the picture that I chose to post, it triggers Rachel in a way that correlates uh, newspaper articles and things that were written and, and published about the death of Joe and how he passed. And therefore it, it needed to be removed off of our, our website because that's just, that's just not fair to open up our, you know, something that's supposed to be happy and special and good and relieving. And the first thing you're going to hone in on it and that's going to feel that feeling is going to come. It's that trauma, it's the triggers and all of that stuff feeds into grief. It feeds into epilepsy and Fortunately, with you, you get the double whammy. You get the epilepsy caused you grief and you live with epilepsy now forever and grief now forever. I think about like with Joe, if Joe were here and I started this podcast, which I would never do because. I don't particularly enjoy talking about epilepsy because it really did that Joe and I's relationship, my famous line, right? Like I liked hearing some of his stories in the past, but because it scared me in ways, even subconsciously, I would never dream of creating a podcast on a, on a disease and spending hours and hours of time editing and interviewing and <laughs> talking about epilepsy. I think if, if Joe were around, would would he even want to be on this podcast and talk about his epilepsy journey? Yeah, he, he, he'd go in for an interview maybe and share some really funny stories of being in the hospital or doing wheelies on, in his wheelchair in high school. He would be missing some of the deep emotional impact that you and I have to sort through. That's a good thought. You know, would Joe even want to do this podcast? Yeah, he might, he'd, yeah, an interview, but would he co-host one? He epilepsy pretty well. Some of my closest friends, our closest friends, didn't know he had epilepsy until shortly before he passed. Would it have been different? Would it have been easier for him to have a support system, make sure his friends being like, hey, you need to go to bed. You don't need to party as hard as, you know, out drinking, doing that kind of stuff that we did when we were 20 and in college and not go to bed because we have a paper that's due tomorrow. And oh my gosh, I got to finish that paper. And if we would have been better, me, because I was acted the same way, I only had a few select friends that I would tell about my epilepsy. Uh, other than that, I wasn't going to let it get in the way or have people worry about me. No one wants your friend to be a babysitter in college. They just throw a Red Bull at him and say, here you go, Joe. <laughs> Good luck on your all-nighter studying and We'll see you tomorrow. No consciousness of what could really, yeah, the consequences that could happen. It it is good to have a support system, but it it is fine to have epilepsy, but to not be defined by epilepsy. And that's my golden rule is I will not let epilepsy define me. Hi, I'm Katie and I have epilepsy. Yeah. We're like in an AA meeting or something. (laughs) It's funny to me, the difference of people that, you know, Joe, obviously the same way, you know, that's not, he, he wasn't going to let that define him. No, he wasn't going to lose out on a good time with his friends. Yes. 
I think the most disappointed he was though when he felt discriminated against it wasn't because they knew he had epilepsy it was because he was in the like cart goat carts kind of like formula one yeah. the engineering society at university of aberdeen and he was disappointed that he couldn't be the driver because he was six foot six and he wanted to be in that little goat cart and i mean his knees were just right at, i mean he, he looked ridiculous in that little goat cart <laughs> He's like, we need to custom make one for me. <laughs> and his broad shoulders and long torso and just think it would really slow down the cart. It's going to skew the engineering results of the go-kart that they were. So long story short is status can... Epilepticus. Status? Status. Epilepticus. Yes, status epilepticus can cause, you know, quite an issue and it it can kill you and it can cause suda and it can cause a lot of grief. That's the heart of the episode right there. Katie's summary. But this is, this is a great transition into not only you mentioned your love of writing, we are beginning our blog topics on both grief, grief and epilepsy and our experiences coming up as well as kicks us off for our, upcoming episodes with some amazing people we are going to interview from scientists to athletes. Yes. And I'd have to say, Rachel, I'm beyond honored to have season two coming up. We have worked hard on season one and season two is going to be absolutely amazing. I feel season two is going to be uh, take it up a notch when we, we do these personal interviews where we talk about the personal journeys, successes, failures, and then to the science, to the leaps and bounds of progress that they're making in the epilepsy fields. And then of course, storytelling on the side. We love to storytell. (laughs) Love to storytell. And if you have any questions or if you have a topic, then go ahead and leave us a comment. If you'd like to be interviewed, leave us a message and let us know what you got to offer. If you have any topic ideas, questions, or research you are curious about, we would love to hear from you. Drop us a message on our Instagram account, 26podcast, or email us at info at 26.org. Thank you for listening.